GradChat, your opportunity to find out about graduate research here at Queen's. My name is CJ the DJ and I am your host for this week's GradChat. Of course, a show like this could not happen without the support of the School Graduate Studies and Postdoctoral Affairs as well as CFRC, so thank you very much to both of them. Now, if your mates miss the show at any time, you can download the podcast the next day on either iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify and CFRC podcast. So no excuse not to hear what our awesome students and postdoctoral fellows are doing. Today, though, I would like to introduce you to Sophia Guest, who is doing a Master of Science in Geography under the supervision of Dr. Laura Thompson, as well as Madeline Myers, who is doing a PhD in Geography under the supervision of Dr. Laura Thompson. Welcome to Grad Chat, both of you. Thanks for Thank having you. us. You know, it was great that both of you agreed to come on the show after I uh, you know, read the article in the Queen's Gazette about the work that you do up north in, in the Arctic. And uh, as soon as I read it, I was absolutely fascinated and, of course, wanted to know more, hence got you into the studio. And for those of you that didn't see that article, it was called A Trip to the Top of the World, which is pretty cool which talked about the glacier monitoring program that assesses the impact of climate change in none of it. And that was brought out on uh, the Gazette article was January the 9th in 2024. So I highly recommend have a bit of a read of that. Some lovely little pictures there as well. So maybe one of you uh, could tell us a little bit more about the fact that you're working in what's called the ICE Lab, ICE Climate and Environmental Laboratory, what is it, where is it, and how do you get there? Or is it just on campus? So we do have a lab on campus. It is in the basement of Matt Corey, but we do have windows, so uh, we do get a bit <laughs> of sunlight. It. Yeah. <laughs> and essentially what we do in the ice lab is we study ice-climate interactions and the role that the response of glaciers to climate plays in the surrounding environment. And while we do have an office on campus, once a year we travel up north to the McGill Arctic Research Station where we participate in a broader network of scientists that are studying similar things but also studying more of the um, environmental impact and microbiology, ecology of the area. So we do uh, mostly focus on Queen's campus but we participate in a, a larger network of scientists elsewhere. So I guess you must bring your data back here and work on it for the rest of the year in your lab here. We spend a lot of time on the computer. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know which I prefer, the computer or going up north and being with all that snow and everything. <laughs> Sophia, you, you're doing a master's as opposed to Maddie doing her PhD. So a master's is only a couple of years. How, ma how many times have you been up there? So I've been up there once so far. I went up before officially starting my master's, actually. Right. And then I'll be going up again this spring with Maddie and our supervisor, Laura. And then hopefully we'll see if it ends up happening one more time at the very end of my master's. Oh, fantastic. And Maddie, how many times have you been up there? I've gone up three times so far. And we're planning to go again this spring. And how long do you stay each time you go? 
Usually it's about a month total that we're away from home. When we're actually at the field camp, I would say it's probably about three weeks, depending on weather delays and how difficult or easy it is to get up there. Yeah, because I understand it's not so easy. It's not like you can just jump in the car and, and get there. You have to do a bit of trekking too, don't you? For sure. Yeah, we have quite a few flight legs before we actually get to the field camp. That must be quite expensive to get up there and to even get all your equipment that you you need up there. How does that work? Does, does that get happen beforehand or your equipment or you take it all with you? So it certainly involves a lot of organization, which thankfully our supervisor does a lot of. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. <laughs> but it's also a big part of a larger network called the Polar Continental Ice Program. Okay. Polar Continental Shelf Program. where scientists who are studying the North often congregate in Resolute, which is in Nunavut, and send all of their gear up and leave gear there beforehand. Right. And then we charter a flight from there up to the island that we actually work on and land on the frozen lake up there. (laughs) So do you have to take your own food with you when you go there to last you for the three weeks? Or again, is that already put there for you? We try to keep some goods up there just in case something was to go wrong Mm -hmm. but yes we do bring up all of our own food again expensive and i guess it doesn't leave much room in your backpack for your own clothes (laughs) (laughs) and what happens if you're not a good skier well we fortunately have skidoos well that that would be fun it but, definitely is. But but would it be fun? Because if I'm if we're thinking glaciers, they're not always just totally smooth. They've got big cracks in them sometimes, don't they? So how do you know where when you're going to come across a bit of a crack? Well, part of it is through studying these glaciers, we've learned where there are likely to be these big cracks. Oh, okay. Um, and then the idea is that when we can avoid the big ones, the skidoo will go right over the little ones without too much of an issue. (laughs) Okay, that's putting a lot of faith (laughs) in your maps. (laughs) You you see those movies where people are suddenly falling into a big crevasse and you think, okay, that's not for me. But anyway, I guess you're all used to it and you get all the training that you need before you go there. Yeah, yeah. So we're actually going out as a lab out to Alberta to practice that because it's a very important training that we do is the rescue for if someone were to fall into a crevasse, which I don't believe anybody has ever needed a rope rescue at our station, (laughs) but it's really important to train beforehand, just in case. Is this when we touch wood? Because we probably put the marker on it, right? We probably put the marker on it. (laughs) Sorry, everybody up there. (laughs) Well, I'm glad you do all the proper training and everything, because that would be a bit of a concern, but of course, we um, and anything we, we do these days, the risk and safety is always of paramount importance. I'm glad we're doing that. All right, so I guess we should should talk about your individual research. So Sophia, let's start with you. Your research topic is called precipitation sources and summer snowfall in the Canadian Arctic. Can you just summarize that quickly? And I've got a couple of questions here, which I think would be really interesting because the word actually putting the word precipitation sources in there is is, I find fascinating yeah for sure so as you kind of mentioned my work is divided into two components the first is just figuring out how much snow is falling on the glacier specifically during the summer because 
what we measure currently is the snow that falls in the fall and winter, but at such high latitudes, it's possible that even up to half of the snow falling on the glacier occurs during the spring and summer. Sorry, can I just interrupt? What would the temperatures be up there in spring and summer? In spring, it must be still pretty cold to get the snow coming down. Yeah, yeah. In spring, when we're up, it's anywhere from like minus thirty-five to maybe minus five. Mm -hmm. Do you know how warm it gets in the summer, Maddie? Minus five. That's warm, is it? Okay. (laughs) (laughs) It's not good if it gets above zero because then the streams start melting and it's really hard to get around. But in the summertime, I think that I want to say fifteen degrees. I'm sure that they get warmer days, but I would say that's kind of the peak temperature. Right. Okay. That's quite a swing. Yes. Sorry, I interrupted you, but oh, I was no. just suddenly thought, what is that temperature going to be? <laughs> yeah, for sure. So it's it's chilly up there. We we wear big parkas. <laughs> <laughs> but then the other part of my research is actually collecting snow samples and then using those snow samples to figure out where the water which fell down on the glacier originally evaporated and then how it traveled to get to the arctic okay oh that sounds um pretty difficult to do to be perfectly honest so maybe the best question to ask you is why do we look at glaciers to understand climate change i mean i i've i've been on several glaciers down in new zealand fox glaciers and, that, and they're still advancing but there's other glaciers that aren't advancing so why, why do you think it's important that we do that, specifically understand climate change? Yeah, that's a great question. There's a couple different reasons. One is the amount of melt, which I think Maddie will get into okay. later because her work primarily is looking at the melt and the weather, whereas my work with the isotopes looks at it slightly differently. There are these things called ice cores where we just take like a core out of the glacier, we drill yes. down and mm-hmm. pull out ice. And then we can look at the isotopes, which can actually tell us the temperature that it so, was. So what's an isotope? Fell. How does this isotope tell the temperature? Yeah, so that's where it gets a little complicated. I'm ah, still ah, learning. Ah, 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 ah. <laughs> I love it. Because I would have thought different layers. You know, we do coring and things. There's different layers, and sometimes they're different colors, and there's got more iron in or, you know, those sorts of things. Is it similar in ice? Similar idea, yeah. We're looking at different layers, hopefully seeing, like, each year there's a new layer of snow, which then gets compacted down into ice. Right. The isotopes themselves are, like, oxygen. There's different versions of oxygen, which have different weights. And we can look at the different ratios, Mm -hmm. and that will tell us the temperature that it was when it precipitated. Oh, that's Which interesting. Is really interesting. So, um, if one is thicker than another, that could have been a, a wetter season to another. Is that basically potentially? Yeah, might not be. I'm yeah. probably, <laughs> <laughs> probably not a very good analogy, but. <laughs> but so we can sort of figure out. Yeah, if like a layer is thicker, that does mean it's probably wetter, and that there was more precipitation. Right. And then right. when we look at it, like on a smaller level, looking at the isotopes, we can figure out. So what uh, what are we wanting? Because if there's more precipitation, does that mean it's warmer weather? Generally, yes. Okay, but then it's freezing to get a nice layer on your on your glacier. Is that not a good thing to keep the glacier intact as opposed to it melting away? So warmer weather with more precipitation 
is a good thing, but it also means that there is going to be more melt. So if you think of like a glacier in British Columbia, there's mm-hmm. gonna be more precipitation and also more melt, whereas the Arctic, there will be less precipitation and less melt overall. Okay. But recent studies are finding that the it's Arctic shifting. is getting warmer and wetter mm. and that these glaciers are okay. are changing. And so like these ice cores can also show layer by layer go back a long time and there's going right. to be one drilled in 2025 how far down do you drill depends the one in 2025 they're expecting it to be 600 meters wow of ice wow and is that how much they think is the thickness of the glacier or does it go further that's how thick they think the glacier is wow, wow that's pretty huge <laughs> in my opinion <laughs> okay so next one for you what is special about the glacier you are studying? Because, like you said, you know, there's some in British Columbia that, if I've understood it correctly, are actually receding, not maintaining or going forward. What's so special about yours being up in the Arctic? Yeah, well, one thing that's really special about ours is, well, yes, as we kind of talked about, the Arctic has different conditions to more southern Canada. But what's really special about this glacier is the research history So there have been people going up most years since the 60s doing all sorts of research. That's good. Which is really cool. So we have a long history. um, And it's also beautiful and (laughs) an amazing place to go. When you're not trudging through the snow and carrying all that equipment with you (laughs) and your food. (laughs) So some of your work will be done at the Canadian Ice Core Laboratory up there, of course. What is it like to work um, up there and what kind of analysis will you conduct with your samples there? Because you can't bring everything back with you. Mm -hmm. So most of our work up north is just use like collecting data and then my work will be collecting samples which we actually will be shipping south okay we'll be just be shipping to Edmonton as opposed to here at Queens right because that's where the Canadian ice core lab is oh, I situated see. Sorry. right also yeah. there's kind of like three parts to it then whoever's doing the research you've got your own internal university lab and then there's the top one where you're collecting and then there's the ice core lab yeah the ice core lab is more specific to my research because I'm collecting physical samples and I'm co-supervised between the two universities. Ah, right, okay. So I'll be bringing them back there, which is an entire lab just dedicated to looking at snow and ice. And finding those little isotopes. Exactly, yes. (laughs) (laughs) So after being in the Arctic, will you go to Edmonton for a while before coming back to here at Queen's? Yeah, so I will go to Edmonton and the samples will get put into a... Minus 40 freezer, which we can Lovely. then process in a minus 30 working room. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, much warmer. <laughs> Bring out the suntan lotion. <laughs> you probably need suntan lotion up in the Arctic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hope you got a factor 50. So, um, well, there seems to be a lot of moving around you're doing, which is really, as a student, is not always easy unless there's a lot of funds in your research lab. So is that helping with some of this travel that you have to do which can't be cheap yeah I would say that right now climate change research is more important than ever and with these glaciers melting we want to try to understand everything that we can about them Mm -hmm. so 
thankfully people are recognizing that and some funding is going into laser research. That's really good. Well, I wish you all the best on, on all of that. Because, I mean, two years goes pretty quickly for your <laughs> master's. It sure does. <laughs> is this something you'd like to continue on with after? I think so, yes. Yeah, oh, glut for punishment. There we go. <laughs> Have you not spoken to Maddie yet? <laughs> and her experiences. <laughs> so on that, we better talk to you, Maddie, about your work. Now, you, you've got a bit longer to do your research. You've got the four years. You know, I've been doing a PhD. And your topic is how glacier surface mass change is affected by climate change. So... First of all, again, can you just give me a bit of an overview of what you're trying to do there, and then we'll get into more of the nitty-gritty questions. Hmm. So I'm studying ice-climate interactions, the ice being glaciers, and in the Canadian Arctic, especially above 75 degrees north, we have quite a few glaciers. Uh, A lot of the land mass is covered by glaciers, and we need to understand how those glaciers are changing as the climate is getting warmer. And so to do that, I specifically rely on data that's collected at weather stations. There aren't a whole lot of weather stations up north, as you can imagine, but we do have about 35 that have data that I can work with. And so because we don't have a lot of weather stations, but we do have a lot of glaciers, part of my work is figuring out how we can use the climate data that we're measuring or the weather data that we're measuring and extrapolate that to the glacier covered areas where we don't have climate measurements. And so I also dabble, uh, most of my work I should say is in the realm of modeling. So I'm modeling glacier surface melt with respect to climate change. So just thinking about surface changes, not what's going on inside of the glacier, underneath the glacier. Just yes, because, I mean, you, you can extrapolate to a certain point, can't you? But there's always some variable that maybe not have been in the one that you're looking at, which has to be taken into consideration, if you even know what that could be. Exactly. There's a... So I, I do energy balance modelling, just thinking about how much energy is hitting the glacier surface and how is that melting the glacier. And there's one big component of that that is called long wave radiation. Um, So this is kind of like short wave. So that's what we get from the sun. Sun, right, yep. Long wave is what we get from the earth. Oh, okay. So from the bottom instead. Yes. So sun, short wave above, long wave underneath. Exactly. And so what happens when this long wave is leaving the earth, it gets trapped by clouds and also by greenhouse gases. And so long wave is a really big part of the, uh, what's driving climate change. Right. Those greenhouse gas that, because it's being stopped. Exactly. It's not escaping into the never, never. Exactly. And so Long wave is one of those key variables that we're not measuring. Ah. And we're not measuring it. We don't have a long, a long record of long wave. So right. that's, I would say, one of the more important uh, variables to extrapolate. And that's where modeling really comes in to help with long wave. That's, that long wave part is actually I'm finding really interesting because we always talk about climate change with greenhouse gases being this is the big issue and it is 
but not the way people are thinking. It's because it's not allowing this other thing to escape, so it's coming back down, being like a super a super sun, I guess. Yeah, yeah. So it's so kind you're of... getting double whammy instead of one going away and just getting the sun melting. This thing's bouncing back down. Exactly. Is that is that a good into analogy? Yeah, and you can actually get a sense of what that's like, uh, particularly in the winter time where. We're doing this in the winter time, and if you go outside on a cloudy night versus a clear night, you might notice that it's actually a bit warmer on those cloudy nights, and on right. those clear nights, it feels a bit more crisp. And that's just because the clouds are trapping that escaping long wave radiation. Right, which makes sense even down here. You notice that, right? When there's big cloud covers, it tends to not be as cold. Yeah, exactly. Oh my God, very clever. Okay, so what is the difference then between climate and weather? Because I think that's something we all need to understand because I would have thought they were the same, but clearly not. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Yeah, they're, they're similar, I guess, but the, the big difference is the time scale that they happen on. So what we like to say is climate is what you expect and weather is what you get. Oh, well, talking about the weatherman then. Yes. <laughs> that never, not quite what they say. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so we're, what we mean when we're talking about climate changing is that there's this long-term change in what we expect. And this long-term change in what we're expecting is, of course, caused by short-term weather patterns. Right. So in this business... I guess we define climate based on a 30-year record. Okay. We've decided that, or someone much smarter than myself uh, has decided that 30 years is the amount of time that we need to properly define what kind of weather we might expect, expect. to have on a certain day. But I would have thought 30 years... 10 years ago would have worked but things are ch changing so fast now do they have to relook at that 30 year and make it less there are some publications that are coming out that are suggesting modifying 30 years based on exactly what you said the rate of change is increasing so it's changing much faster i still am looking at 30 years to define climate but I think that that's definitely a direction that we're moving in. Yeah, I don't want to change your research project just no. yet. <laughs> Forget I said that. I've not got much time left. So. <laughs> Forget that, Colette. All right. So how do you know that the climate is changing? I mean, what is the value of doing this long-term monitoring? So there are lots of fancy scientists who work with fancy data sets and can understand what the climate was like. Let's say in one example, people use these teeny tiny shelled organisms and they know what the, what the climate was like like 60 oh. million years ago. Yes, because it depends on the sea levels and things where they found those shells, right? Mm -hmm. What was available then. And... Mm. Some other people, like with uh, Sophia's work, they can <laughs> use ice cores and measure things like the carbon dioxide that's trapped in those little air bubbles right, in right. the ice core. In those isotope things. Yes. And understand what the temperature was like, because there's a direct relationship between CO2, atmospheric CO2 concentrations and temperature. Right. And so uh, we have these long-term glacier ice core records, but 
We also have shorter term climate records that we actually can measure from automated weather stations. In the past, mm -hmm. we didn't have automated weather stations and there was a person that would manually record the temperature changes. Oh, wow. We, so we have these long term, but short term in the big picture grand scheme of things, mm -hmm. these like hundred year records of what the, what the climate has been doing. And so that's kind of the realm that I live in is this 100-year. Uh, I focus more on the 60-year record because we have this wonderful glacier, the White Glacier, that has that 60-year right. record. That's good. It's nice to have that data, isn't it, beforehand? I mean, can you imagine what it would be like starting from scratch? It would be awful. Well, I'm sure there's ways to do it, but there's other things you could look at. But um, Yeah. It seems like the perfect glacier, this White Glacier, was it called? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a great glacier, and it is, it's really, really extremely helpful having this long-term record of understanding how the weather has been changing, but also how has the glacier been responding to mm -hmm. these, these changes. And so when we're trying to understand and quantify the relationship between glacier melt and these different climate variables like temperature, humidity, things like that, long-wave radiation... It's important to, to have measurements that are sort of boots on the ground so right. we know that this is, this is what the temperature really is and this is how much the glacier is actually melting. Can I ask a roundabout, I don't know if you can answer this, but we're talking about the glacier and, and what happens with the weather patterns and da-da-da-da. What about the other landscape around? Is that having any impact on the glacier? I mean, I don't know what's there, that we've got mountains or, or anything like that, that if they're changing could have an impact? Yes. So just like the glaciers are melting because of climate change, there are other icy bodies nearby that mm -hmm. are also melting or thawing. Um, so we know the permafrost, right? I mean, the yeah. biology students are studying the permafrost and how that's changing so rapidly and of course that ends up creating more greenhouse gases mm -hmm, exactly and so whenever the landscape i guess is receiving energy as well from the sun let's say is that energy going towards warming up that that land surface is that energy going towards okay. melting the ice or is it kind of if it does warm up that land surface is it starting to re-emit long wave back right. and, and affecting the energy balance. So do you have to take all that into consideration with your modeling? Because that's all those sort of variables, right, that you're thinking about. I personally am not. Right. Those are These are big questions that even I am not uh, well equipped to answer extremely accurately right now. But these are definitely things that we need to take into mm -hmm. account. So I do some high resolution, so thinking on small spatial scales, okay. glacier modeling. And these are really important things to think about on at those small resolutions. But the climate models that we have to work with are at really small resolution. Uh, so they're, we're saying that the temperature is the same on a 30 kilometer by 30 kilometer grid when we know that that's not actually the case. Mm -hmm. And so it's really difficult to go from this large scale, low resolution data set to the fine scale, like microclimate is the word that, right. that we would use. Yep. It's hard to go between those scales. And so this is also why 
having not just one weather station, but multiple weather stations in a small area is extremely important. Lots to do. So here's the big question, and I guess either of you could actually answer it, perhaps. So what impact do glaciers have on people, and why should we care about the Canadian glaciers in particular? When I think about glaciers, and what most people think about when they're thinking about glaciers, is they think about sea level rise. Yes. And sea level rise because of glacier melt. And that's a huge factor. Uh, These glaciers are globally important to sea level rise. And so right now with the, the sort of model comparisons, the models generally predict that we'll see about a quarter to a meter of sea level rise by 2100. So in the right? next 80, 75 years. Okay, I won't be years. around, but... <laughs> um, <laughs> which doesn't seem like a lot to us. Uh, but it is. A meter is huge. Yeah, exactly. And especially in areas that are susceptible to, like, storm surges, um, low-lying, shallow-sloping coastlines. Well, all the communities up north there are going to have to move further inland, aren't they? Yeah. If that I, happens. We're... I'm pretty sure that we're already seeing some infrastructure changes right. because of rising seas. But so we think about sea level rise, right? We check, can check that box. What some people don't think about, particularly here, is these glaciers as a source of fresh water mm-hmm. as opposed to salt water. Yes. So there are also these huge reservoirs of fresh water that we could be drinking. And some people in certain parts of the world do rely on glaciers for their drinking water, like the Himalayas, for example. Okay. Um, But if we've got no glaciers, then we're going to lose that supply. Yeah, exactly. And when these glaciers are melting, that water oftentimes goes right to the ocean. So it becomes part of this salt water Uh, again. Right. And Hmm. whenever that fresh water does get to the oceans we're also making the oceans less salty. And so this isn't necessarily my area of study, (laughs) but... But it's a good point. Yeah, salt water... You're diluting it, aren't you? Exactly. In that particular area, anyway. Mm -hmm. And it's it's important, too, that we're diluted... Or not important, it's a bad thing, but that this is the region that it's being diluted because it can slow global ocean circulation which is a major climate moderator. It would change all the fish supplies and things, wouldn't it? Which not only we like to, some of us like to eat, but the animals that rely on fish and other other fish who eat fish. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And the people, people who rely on fish. So we'll see shifts from saltwater fish to freshwater fish maybe and changing diets of people who rely on these for their livelihoods. So, so it's got a huge impact then, is basically what you're saying? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Definitely a cultural impact. Um, In a nutshell, yes, Colette. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, what you're both doing is ab- absolutely incredible and absolutely necessary for us. I mean, there's still those naysayers who don't think there's anything happening, but clearly you're seeing already p- patterns changing just by looking at one glacier in one area of the world so who knows what's happening and you could virtually say up there is actually the air is cleaner than down here so imagine what's happening to the temperatures of the earth down here compared to up there 
that was a long way of saying that but just to say that it's really really important and I'm glad that you're both doing it and it looks like you both enjoy it (laughs) (laughs) I would say so (laughs) so but before we go I would like to look at a couple of things here if you don't mind some of your extracurriculars Sophia you got down here you love rock climbing hiking and skiing which pretty well lovely that you do seeing as that's probably what you have to do up there right (laughs) sometimes sometimes (laughs) I just love being outside and yeah we do do a little bit of work with skiing on the glacier not as much because the skidoos are a bit more efficient right skiing has a you know a smaller carbon impact well they've made a great photo (laughs) (laughs) thank you yeah but you're true I mean that's the thing too it's it's reducing the carbon footprint isn't it so uh, if you're a good skier yay (laughs) I'd need all that expanse because I'm not a very good skier, so I'd need lots of space to stop. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so that's really good. And, and Maddie, um, apart from me camping, you've got this, what's this Skype a scientist that you do? A program that you've got here, a program that connects scientists and classrooms across the world so students can get to know a scientist and ask questions. That's pretty neat. Yeah, it's really cool. I've been connected with mostly classrooms in the United States, but if any teachers are listening and you're interested, just go to skypeascientist.com maybe is, I think, their website. Okay. But you can Google Skype a Scientist, and it'll pair you if you put the topics you're interested in. So I usually get paired with classrooms who are interested in climate change or glaciers or the Arctic, sometimes right. Antarctica. And you essentially, it gives the class an opportunity to ask questions to a real scientist and that's awesome yeah that's really awesome because I remember you know if I haven't said it enough already on 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 the air I am Australian and of course we have a lot of the kids who live in the outback and on on stations and things so they get their classes through on on the air it used to be just through radio now of course they can use computers so it's a similar sort of thing isn't it bringing the, the work to them making it easier for them but what an awesome opportunity. Yeah, yeah. And I should note, too, it's not just for school classrooms. One time I was paired with an English as a second language classroom. Right, right. Um, and that was a really cool experience as well. That's fantastic. Have you ever tried it, Sophia? I, I have not, but maybe I'll have to. Yes. Well, I think, it might, again, it's a great way to get your work out there and, and figure out how to say it <laughs> for the different audiences, which is which is terrific. And Maddie, you're also on um, an Apex Canada board member. That's the Association of Polar Early Career Scientists, which focuses on promoting early career scientists working in the poles and wider cryosphere. What made you want to go on to that? One, or is it a small group? Is it a big group? Is I'm assuming it's kind of, I know it's the Canadian one, but is there a world one as well? Yes. So, and I should note too that I was a board member in the past, but am no longer because I have to focus on you finishing have to my PhD. Good job. But Balance. Yeah. <laughs> it is a global organization, though. So it would just be Apex in Canada. We like to call it Apex, like E H P E C X. Oh, yeah. Very Canadian. Yes. <laughs> Even I understood that one. Yeah. <laughs> But it just it connects early career scientists to talk about issues that are similar to us. Also, we can think about opening positions for postdocs together or sometimes right. for professor positions. 
That's really good. Because having those sorts of networks is really helpful, particularly in the kind of work that both of you are doing. I mean, I, I would imagine, Sophia, you've learned a lot from people who have done more work um, and not necessarily just from the, the Queen's community, but the broader community. Um, actually, Sophia, how many different groups are up there when you're up there in the Arctic? How many other labs are there, so to speak? So it, it depends on the time of year. When mm-hmm. we're up there recently, there have been two groups. There's been our group has been focusing on the glaciers. And then there's been a group from McGill who right. is a part of the physics department there. Right. He's trying to look at the early origins of the universe. So very different oh, work. So they're looking for the clear skies to <laughs> exactly. make it easier for them. Right. So yeah. things like radio here interfere with the signals that they need. So right. they have to go to where there's no radio. <laughs> okay. Fascinating. I love it. All this networking is is terrific. And I'm glad you're both getting involved with it. In, one involved involved with it but also enjoying it by the looks of it so so thank you i really do appreciate you both coming on the show today best of luck with both of your work fascinating lots to do with it please make sure you share some of the the work that you do because it's really important for other people to to hear so whichever format you can do it that would be terrific i'm sure people would love to know more so again thank you for coming on the show yeah, thanks for having us. Thank you. <laughs> so that's it, everyone. A Another week of Grad Chat sadly comes to an end. Don't forget you can download the show tomorrow from either iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify or CFRC Podcast. Just type in Grad Chat. Until next week, this is CJ the DJ signing off with a big hooray. for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples and brought to you by the generous support of the Faculty of Engineering and Applied Science.